Oh, hold on now. There you go. It doesn't say that I'm good here. That was me. So uh, I'm grateful for, for Mike uh, sharing his uh, testimony. It has been amazing and wonderful to see what God has done in your, your life, Mike. And uh, Tanechka, we couldn't be happier for you. So I know everyone knows you as Tatiana now, but you're still Tanechka to us. Tanechka helped us uh, start the church. She and her uh, first husband who passed away a number of years ago, and God has done some just amazing, wonderful stuff. Well, it is, I've been uh, excited to uh, spend this time with you uh, this morning. And uh, the reason I've been excited is because we are going to uh, spend some time going through perhaps the most controversial chapter in the entirety of the Bible. And uh, we live in a culture right now where there's not a whole lot of controversy. And so I figured a little extra controversy might spice things up a little bit. The, the chapter that we are going to examine this morning is Romans chapter 9, and uh, it has a long history. It has been used to split churches. It has been used to destroy friendships, alienate non-Christians, and most notably in the Netherlands in the 1600s to toss preachers out of pulpits, many times placing those preachers in jail, and sometimes placing those preachers' necks in guillotines where their heads were removed for their beliefs about Romans chapter 9. So the question immediately should come to mind, what in the world is so controversial about this particular chapter of the Bible? Well, in Romans 9, we find perhaps the clearest teaching on the theological doctrines of divine sovereignty and election. Now, for some of you, those terms are going to be very familiar. For others of you, uh, you may not have heard those terms before or not understand those terms. So uh, let me throw a couple definitions up on the screen so you uh, know what those terms mean. We'll be talking about them as we work our way through the message today. Divine sovereignty. It is the exercise of God's all-encompassing rule and power over the entire universe, especially as it relates to God's plan for the salvation of humanity. And then election. God's choosing of individuals or people to bring about God's good purposes, especially as it relates to God's choosing of persons to inherit salvation through Jesus Christ. And uh, Pastor Paul, oh, thank you, Pastor Paul. I appreciate that, putting a slide up there for me. Now, to be clear, no honest, biblically literate Christian, regardless of it's someone uh, who just comes to church on a regular basis or perhaps someone who has been uh, received theological training in the university, no biblically literate Christian will deny the dual doctrines of God's sovereignty and election. But in many cases, he or she will argue how those particular doctrines work. And sadly, many do it with great pride and vitriol, regardless of the damage that it inflicts on other Christians or on God's church. And this is extremely tragic, especially if we take into account uh, the way that Pastor Paul, or Pastor, or <laughs> Apostle Paul, uh, deals with this particular subject in this chapter that everyone gets so upset about. So let's do this. Before we dive in to Romans chapter 9, let's take a moment and ask God to fill our lives with love and our spirits with humility, and let's ask him to open our minds this morning to see what the Spirit actually desires to teach us. So let's pray together. Precious Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before you this morning, and we acknowledge that you are God, and we are not. And Lord God, we confess that we are a prideful lot, we confess, Heavenly Father, that we quickly align ourselves into tribes. We confess, Heavenly Father, that we look down upon others who believe differently than we do. And Lord, we recognize that that is sin that grieves your heart, goes against Jesus' prayer, 
in John 17, that we might be one as you and he are one, dear God. And so we ask this morning that, that Lord, that you would fill our hearts with love. Love for those who, who are different than us, who perhaps believe about things differently than us. Lord God, would you open uh, our spirits and fill us with humility, uh, Lord, considering others better than ourselves. And finally, dear God, would you open our minds and allow your spirit to teach. Lord God, I recognize my own sin, my own frailties and weaknesses, and I pray, dear God, that you would move me aside. And Lord God, that I might be able to clearly communicate your word in this very, very difficult topic. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen. So here's the plan. Uh, Romans chapter 9, crazy, complex. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to cover it over the course of three weeks. Uh, the plan is for me this morning to give you a general overview of the entirety of the chapter. So we're going to work through most of the chapter. You need to re remember, whenever we're studying these epistles in the Bible, the, they're letters. And so uh, really Romans, which... Uh, we've been going over for the last six months was intended for a straight through reading from beginning to end. And so, you know, we kind of piecemeal it each Sunday, but, but this morning I want to make sure that we go through the, the vast majority of the chapter so we can, can see how things actually flow together rather than chopping it up. And then over the course of the next two weeks, Mike Bongo and Pastor Ben are going to deal with uh, specific sections in the chapter uh, in greater detail. Now, if that sounds like a little bit of overkill, let me give you some perspective on how people approach Romans 9. Uh, there is a, a, a pastor, he's passed away a number of years ago. He was a pastor in Philadelphia named Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. A brilliant man. Uh, he took all of his messages and turned them into uh, commentaries. And he has a commentary series on Romans. It's uh, four uh, books long. It's about yay wide if you put it all together. And uh, he deals with Romans chapter 9 over the course of a mind-blowing 17 chapters in that book. And uh, if we did that, we would be talking about Romans 9, that's, you know, what, a third of a year or something like that. So uh, just to put it in perspective, you're getting three weeks from us rather than 17 weeks from Dr. Boyce. So let's get started. If you have a Bible with you, let's open it up, find Romans chapter 9. If you have an app on your phone, go ahead and uh, open it up to that. If you're at home, it's also going to be on the big screen. We are going to uh, start with the first five verses. So if you're able to stand in honor of God's word, I would humbly ask that you would do so, please. <clears throat> I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is the God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice as we work our way through this particular section of scripture is how starkly different the tone of the apostle Paul is here in chapter 9 as opposed to what his tone was in chapter at the end of chapter 8 which pastor Ben took us through last week last week the apostle Paul could not have been any more upbeat about what he was talking about as he discusses God's everlasting love for those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in faith. Listen to how he ends Romans chapter 8. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Romans 8 comes to a close, it is hard to imagine how the Apostle Paul could be any more excited. But, but something changes in Romans chapter 9. There is this, this very big switch in, in, in his tenor and his tone. So what is that something? The Apostle Paul begins to think about the plight of his fellow Jews who have rejected Jesus. In the first eight chapters of Romans, Paul makes a, a very clear case that, that salvation, being made right with God, spending eternity with God, comes through faith and faith alone in Christ. We don't get saved through our lineage. We don't get saved by works, by following the law, by worshiping or offering sacrifices or anything like that. And much of what the first century Jews believed about salvation, they discovered, was wrong. And when Jesus, the Son of God, came to show them the true way to God the Father, they, along with the Romans, rejected what Jesus had to say and ultimately killed him. And so in overwhelming grief, Paul starts off this chapter by saying this, I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. Listen to me, please. He is so burdened by the lostness of those who he grew up with, those who he went to synagogue with, those who he, he trained with, those who were in his family, that in verse three he says this, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What is Paul saying? He's saying this, if I could, I would give up my salvation so that my fellow Jews might be saved. Now the question this morning is this. Is that our heart for those who don't know Jesus? Do we care so much about the, the, the spiritual eternity of our family and our friends, or for that matter, even strangers who are living life without faith in Christ, that we would give up our very salvation so that we, they might be saved? Are our hearts broken by the, the people that, that we meet in the gym or in our classroom or our workplace or our neighborhood or our government or, or anywhere else in our world who are living lives apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? Does that break our hearts? Do we grieve over the fact that those who die without Christ will suffer an eternity in hell? So much so that we would choose hell for ourselves so that they might have eternity with God. Or are we more concerned about solving today's wordle or figuring out if Tom Brady is really going to retire or arguing with others about our perspective on COVID and masks and social distancing and ivermectin or whatever else people argue with now. You see, Paul's heart was absolutely broken over the spiritual condition of his Jewish brothers and sisters that as he thinks about them, his mind is completely blown. They were so spiritually rich. They had such a, a spiritual advantage. Look at verses four and five again. He says this, they're the Israelites and to them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, 
Amen. See, from a spiritual perspective, the ancient Jews, they had it all. God had, had set his favor upon them as, as adopted children. He displayed his, his glory to them as they were making their way uh, through the desert wanderings and, and into the promised land by, by putting a pillar of a cloud in front of them by day and a pillar of fire at night that led them. God had made, made covenants, agreements, uh, relationships with, with their leaders like Moses and David. He had provided them the divine law. He allowed them to, to worship him in the temple and gave them the promise of eternal life. He gave them men of great faith to be their fathers like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But more than anything else, God came to them in the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, a Jew just like them, one of their own flesh. And yet, they reject him. Now, how can that be? How, how can the people who were chosen by God, who, who had received so much from God, how could they now be spiritually on the outside looking in? What in the world happened? And that, my friends, that's the question. What happened to the Jews? What happened to these people who God had promised that they would be his children? How could it be that they were called by God in the Old Testament and now they are not among those who are saved? That's the million dollar question. And, 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 and so what people are trying to find out, what Paul is trying to explain here is, is this. Has God's plan failed? Has the plan that God initiated so long ago, has it actually fallen on its face? And the implications to this question, they are massive. Because if God's plan failed, God is either weak and incapable, or he is a liar who can't be trusted, or perhaps he's both. And if either of those is true, God is a fraud because we learn these things about, about our Lord. In Numbers 23, it says this, that it is impossible for God to lie. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And then in Jeremiah 32, we see that God can do absolutely anything that he wants. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And at this point, everything is on the line. So in order to answer this question, has God's plan failed, Paul lays out a very, very logical case in which he explains God's plan for salvation. And as we work our way through Paul's argument, there is one thing that, that I want you to notice, and there is one thing that I want you to remember. This is what I want you to notice. I want you to notice how Paul addresses this issue in a very thoughtful yet humble manner. And you and I would do well to emulate that same thoughtfulness and humility whenever we engage other people about the things that we're going to talk about today. Now the thing I want you to remember. What I am doing this morning is I am giving you my understanding of what Paul is teaching. Now over the last 20 plus years, I have spent much time studying and thinking about these issues. And as such, I, I believe that I am teaching an accurate exposition of Romans 9, which is supported by, by countless pastors and, and theologians, most of whom are much smarter than me. So I am confident 
that I am in good company. However, I recognize this. There are those in Christianity who, who hold positions counter to that which I am about to share. These people equally love Jesus, and many of them are also much smarter than I am. And I respect their theological positions. I do not doubt the authenticity of their Christian faith because they hold a position counter to mine. So with that said, let's continue. Right out of the gate, Paul gives his answer. Look at the first part of verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So Paul answers the question, has God's plan failed? It's directed to the point, absolutely not. And then he goes to uh, explain and reason by articulating what I believe are five biblical truths about God's plan. Let me give them to you up front and then we'll work our way through them. Number one, God has a plan for salvation. It is called election. Number two, God is just in his plan of salvation. Number three, God is merciful in his plan of salvation. And number four, God is sovereign in his plan of salvation. And finally, number five, human beings have responsibility in his plan of salvation. God has a plan, it's called election. In that plan, God is just, he's merciful, he's sovereign, and human beings, you and I, have responsibility in the midst of that plan. So let's take them one at a time. First one is this. God has a plan for salvation. It is called election. Look at verses six through nine again. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are offspring of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So Paul starts off by explaining the difference between physical Israel and spiritual Israel. The ancient Jews believed that, that physical Israel, in other words, those who were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were the same as spiritual Israel, those who would be saved by God. That's what they believed. They believed that physical Israel, those who were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were the same as spiritual Israel, those who would be saved by God. Their logic was simple. If you're ethnically a Jew, you're in. If you are not ethnically a Jew, you are out. That was the way that they looked at things. However, while that may have been how the ancient Jews saw things, that's not actually how God sees things. And as such, Paul makes it very clear at the end of verse 6 when he says this, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, just because you are biologically a Jew doesn't mean that you're in God's family. And in the same manner, just because you are, aren't biologically a Jew doesn't mean that you are outside of God's family. And in order to support his argument, he, he takes the, his readers back to the Old Testament and he reminds them of Abraham's children, Ishmael and Isaac. Now, God had promised Abraham, whose name at the time was Abram, and who was super old, and his wife Sarah, whose name at the time was Sarai, who was also super old and who had, was way beyond childbearing years, that he would be the father of a great nation. So Abram and Sarai, in their very old age, take God at his word and get busy about trying to make a baby. That's what they do. Now, unfortunately, things are not happening as quickly 
as Abraham and, or Abram and Sarai would like. So Sarai comes up with an idea. She takes matters into her own hands. She suggests that Abram try to conceive the promised child with her Egyptian servant, Hagar, a woman who is much younger than Sarai. Now Abram, he was not about to turn down that offer from his wife. And so he gets together with Hagar. And before you can say, perhaps we should rethink this, Hagar gets pregnant. She has a baby boy whose name is Ishmael. But God's plan was not for Ishmael to to be the child of the promise. God's plan was for Sarai to have a child and that that child would be the child of the promise. That's God's plan. They were working outside of God's plan. So 14 years after Ishmael is born, and during those 14 years, there's tons of drama between Sarai and Hagar and Ishmael. But after those 14 years, Sarai ultimately gets, she's Sarah by now, but she gets pregnant, has a son. His name is Isaac. And as a result, Isaac gets the promise, and Ishmael doesn't get the promise, even though he has the same blood as Abraham. So why does Paul bring all of this up in Romans chapter 8? He does so to demonstrate from the Old Testament that just because someone is biologically an Israelite doesn't mean that they are a part of God's family. That's why he brings these two guys up. Now, Paul knows that the Jews of his day, in an effort to support their belief that that one is saved because of their Jewishness, would try to explain this away by saying Ishmael didn't receive the promise for two reasons. Number one, they would say, because he and Isaac didn't have the same mom. So no wonder he's not sharing in the promise. Number two, they would say, his mom was an Egyptian and not a Jew, so no wonder he didn't get part of the promise. Now, Paul is anticipating this challenge. And and, and so, in Romans 10 through 13, this is what he says. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done had, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So when Isaac, who was the child of the promise, becomes a grown man, He takes a wife by the name of Rebecca. And she, like her mother-in-law, also struggles to conceive. But eventually, she becomes pregnant. And lo and behold, there are twin boys in her womb. And at this point, that you would think that both of Isaac's unborn twins would inherit the promise because unlike Ishmael, they have the same mom. But something wild happens here. Look at Genesis 25, which tells us about this account. In verse 22, it says this. The children struggled together within Rebekah's womb, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So here's Rebecca. She's pregnant. Ladies who have had children, you know that babies get kind of anxious in the womb, kicking you and all this kind of stuff. Well, she's got like an MMA fight going on inside of her womb right now between these two boys. And so she goes to inquire of the Lord. and, And what does God say? God says, the firstborn, whose name is ultimately going to be Esau, would be passed over, and the promise is going to go to, to the younger one, who's Jacob, who's going to come out of the womb just moments after his older brother. So now you have two boys, both who have the same father and mother, and rather than each one of them getting the promise, only the younger gets the promise. Now the question then becomes, Well, why is that? 
What is happening here? Well, look again at verses 11 through 13. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So why did Jacob receive the promise and not Esau? It wasn't due to Jacob being good and Esau being bad. And we know that, why? Because in verse 11, it tells us that God chose Jacob over Esau before they were born, before either one of them could do good or bad. And nowhere in the text do we find God looking down the the annals of the future and seeing Jacob doing good and Esau doing evil and decide that because I looked into the future, I'm going to choose Jacob over Esau. You do not see that in the text. As a matter of fact, in the future, what you will discover in the text is that both Jacob and Esau, they did tons of evil. You see, God didn't choose Jacob over Esau because of any kind of actual or potential good or evil in them. The text tells us that God chose Jacob in order that God's purpose of election might continue. That's why Jacob was chosen. God simply chose Jacob for salvation rather than Esau because he wanted to. That's why he did it. Now, if that is not enough to freak out people, Paul adds in verse 12 a quote from the Old Testament prophet Malachi. And he says this, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. People see that, now their minds are completely blown. What's up with that? How can God look at this guy and love him and look at this person and hate them? Now it's easy to insert our 21st century understanding of love and hatred here. But folks, that is not helpful because our 21st century of love and hatred here does not align with this first century view. You see, when the Bible speaks of love here, it is in the context of acceptance, not affection. And when the Bible speaks of hate here, it's in the context of rejection, not animosity. So what is being said here is God accepted Jacob And God rejected Esau. And that is the first truth that we learn from Romans 9 is this. God has a plan for salvation. It is called election. And it is through election that God chooses people for salvation. Now, it's at this point that the complaint comes out, that is not fair. That's the logical complaint that flows from it. It is not fair. How can it be right for God to choose one person for salvation and God not choose another person? Paul has anticipated this challenge. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he answers his own question. He says, by no means. And this brings us to truth number two. God is just in his plan for salvation. Now, in order to understand this particular truth, we need to understand the meaning of justice. Justice is a word that has been kicked around a lot over the last several years. And and everybody is looking for justice. But if you ask someone to define justice, many people will not even be able to give you a very simple explanation or definition of justice. But here, I don't want you to be one of those people. So when you leave here, you're going to know what justice means because it's very simple. Justice is this. Justice is receiving that which we deserve. It's that simple. Justice is receiving that which we deserve. When a judge is just, she rewards good and she punishes evil. 
That's what a just judge does. A just judge rewards good, punishes evil. Now, this reminds me of the several times that I have been on jury pools, both in, in here in Pennsylvania and also out in, in California. And if you've ever been on a jury pool, uh, you know that the, the lawyer's job is to try to find jurors who are going to be impartial. And so they ask you all kinds of different questions to try to figure out whether you're going to be impartial or not. And one of the lawyer's uh, key questions is this. They'll look at you and they will say this. What is a greater injustice, potential juror number 337? An innocent man being found guilty or a guilty man being found innocent? Which is the greater injustice? So I ask you, think about that for a second. What, what is worse, a, a guilty man being found innocent or an innocent man being found guilty? And here's the answer. They are equally unjust. You see, justice demands that the guilty are punished and the innocent are set free. Anything less than that is not justice. Now, in order to have justice, then, there's got to be an objective standard that, that can either be obeyed or disobeyed. If you don't have the standard, you can't have justice. So there's got to be a standard. Well, as it relates to Americans living here in America, that standard is the laws that have been passed by our local, our state, and our federal governments. And if we break laws here in America, we deserve to get punished, be it community service or a fine or jail time, depending upon the severity of the crime. That's the way that it's supposed to work. And as it relates to, to God and salvation, the objective standard is God's holy word. That's why this Bible is so important. It is objective. You don't get to make up stuff. This is what we get judged based on. And if we break God's law, what the Bible teaches us is that the ultimate penalty for breaking God's law is hell. That's bad. Now, this is extremely troubling because when we read in Romans 3, we learn that humanity is really in deep, deep trouble. Let me give you just a little paraphrase or just a couple verses out of Romans 3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they become worthless, no one does good, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When it comes to God's law, we are all lawbreakers. Every single one of us. And giving this terrifying truth, for as much as we want justice in the American court system, the last thing in the world that you and I should ever want from God is justice. Because God's justice demands that every one of us, due to our sin, be condemned to hell. So be very careful when you ask God for justice from him. And God's plan for salvation, and God's choosing those he will draw to himself, be encouraged by this. He treats no one with injustice. There isn't a single person who gets treated unfairly. And that's exactly how it was in the case of Esau. Esau got exactly what he deserved, and that was to be passed over by God. But what about Jacob? He's a sinner just like Esau. Was God unjust in choosing him? Let me explain this by way of illustration from a book called The Gospel of God. Suppose there are 10 guilty people. And God decides to pardon one of them and sentence the other nine. Who has received injustice. The nine who were sentenced, they get exactly what they deserve, the just punishment for their sins. They receive justice. The nine receive justice. The one receives mercy, but no one receives injustice. No one. And that brings us to the third truth we discover in Romans chapter 9, and it is this. 
God is merciful in his plan of salvation. You see, brothers and sisters, at the very heart of election is mercy. And we need to remember that. Look at verses 15 to 16. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So what is mercy? Let's define that. We need to understand that. Mercy is this. It's not getting what we deserve. That's what mercy is. And once again, the Apostle Paul goes to the Old Testament to support this argument. And he goes this time to Exodus 33, where God reveals to Moses a fundamental aspect of his character. Moses is, is, wants to understand God better. He wants to see God. And in the pre- process of all of this that's going on, God explains to Moses a very important part of his character, and it's this. God is free to give mercy to anybody who he wants to give mercy to. And here we see that God isn't just a God of justice, but he is also a God of mercy. And he's free to extend that mercy to one person and not extend that mercy to another person. So to say it's unfair for God to be merciful to one sinner and by choosing them for salvation and, and not to extend it to another sinner who he chooses to pass over, to say that that's unfair, that's a very violation of the definition of mercy because mercy that is deserved is not mercy at all. If everybody deserves mercy, it's not mercy. It's a logical uh, contradiction. In verse 16, Paul makes this even clearer when he says this. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, your salvation and my salvation is not based on anything that we do. Nothing. It's not based on our works. It's not based on a right that we deserve. It is a gracious act of God the Father towards those whom he has created. And here's what's beautiful about this. Being chosen by God for salvation is radically humbling because we bring nothing to the table. The fact that, that, that we're saved, that, 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 that God chose salvation for us, it should humble us to the core. God didn't choose us because we're such great rule followers. He didn't draw us to himself because we're so smart or so rich or so kind or so godly. He graciously chose us despite who we are. And folks, we are a sinful lot who discern, deserve condemnation and not salvation. And as such, this doctrine of election should make us humble, loving people. When I think about my own salvation, it humbles me to the core because I know the depth of my sin. I see it every single day. The stuff that goes through my mind, the places my eyes want to go. Here I've been redeemed by God for a long time, but that old Mike Leonzo keeps wanting to come back. I'll give you an example of something that just happened the other day. I had to, to make my way uh, out 83 and 280 or to 322 to Hershey. And so I, I live over here at the corner of Progress Avenue and Union Deposit. And so the, the best way to do that is I have a little shortcut. I go, some of you, if you're around here, you'll know this shortcut. You go down Progress Avenue, okay, you only hit one light. You hit the light at, at the intersection of Progress, or what's Paxtang Avenue there and Derry Street. You go through that, you go under the underpass, you make your first right, go through this little neighborhood, make another right, curve through there, there's a little alleyway, and it drops you right onto the on-ramp to 83 north. But there's a problem with my little trip. The on-ramp is very short, 
And so I know how to get on the expressway. I lived in Southern California. I know those who stop at the end of an on-ramp are fools. So I'm in my, my sweet 2003 white Honda Accord, and man, it's got six cylinders. I tramp on that bad boy when I get on that short, and I'm blowing out there. And there's a big truck in front of me, and, and forgive me. If you own one of these vehicles, please forgive me. But you know those, they're, they're like cubes, they're like, an, I don't know, it's a Nissan or something. It looks, like a, it looks like a box that they put like a little engine on the front, and people are driving down the road in this thing, all right? So there's a, a guy that's in this little box. And so it's the truck, it's the on-ramp, and it's the little box coming. And I'm coming out of there like a bat out of you know where. And, and, and this guy is coming up, and I'm like, I can get in on this guy. But he's being a stinker. And so he tramps on the accelerator of that little rubber bound, band wound up motor of his, and, and he tries to keep me from going in. And I decide, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I'm going in. And so I force my way in here, okay? The next thing you know, the guy is telling me that I'm number one. He's beeping the horn at me. He's so excited that I engaged with him. That is not good. That is evil, what I did. What he did wasn't good either. But it just goes to, I'm going to have to answer to that to God one day. Right? I mean, that's, that is what is in this heart. And so what should this do? That, that God would save someone with that kind of behavior? It humbles me to the core, but it does something else. It makes me crazy hopeful for other people because if God would grant me salvation in the midst of my sin, there is no one beyond his gracious reach. And some folks will say that, well, the doctrine of election makes you apathetic and evangelism and all this kind of stuff. I, I completely disagree with that because I look at every person, regardless of who they are, that they are a potential member of the kingdom of God. I do not know what God knows. But I can't write a single person off because they're, quote, a bad person. Because if God saved me, anyone is savable. Okay, we're getting close. Two final points. I, I see time is running out here. And we're going to address these two points together. Look at the next couple verses, verses 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that he, uh, so then he who has mercy, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. So these are the last two points. God is sovereign in his plan of salvation, and we have responsibility in that plan of salvation. Now, on the surface, these two verses are troubling to many people, but if you take away the emotion and allow these verses to simply speak for themselves, they become perfectly understandable. So after God is dealing with Moses, and Moses is this guy, he's in a great relationship with God, God loves him, Moses loves God, he loves the Israelites, he's, he's like your stellar dude. Now Paul picks the complete antithesis of Moses. He now deals with Pharaoh. He's the exact opposite, a man who is opposed to God and who has exploited and tortured God's people. If you recall, the ancient Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years. In the early years, they, they came under uh, the covering of Joseph, and they were welcomed, and they were well-treated. But Joseph eventually died, and we're told that another pharaoh rose up, didn't know who Joseph was, and all of a sudden the Israelites, they become a, a problem. And the reason they become a problem is because they are breeding like rabbits. They, they, they are having tons and tons of kids, and they are beginning to outnumber the Egyptian population. 
And so to control this threat, this new Pharaoh, he turns them into slaves. He treats them horribly. Listen to some of the stuff that he does to them. Exodus 1. So the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. That's bad. But it even gets worse than that. In order to keep the Jews from growing in number, Pharaoh orders the Egyptian midwife wives who are delivering all of the Hebrew babies, he, he orders them to kill every male baby to control the population. You see, Pharaoh is a very bad man. Very, very, very bad man. And over time, God intervenes to save the Israelites by sending Moses to rescue them. And, and so Moses meets with Pharaoh. He tells him that Pharaoh needs to free the Israelites. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He resists. God sends a plague. And this whole cycle goes over and over and over again. Moses shows back up again, says, release my people, let my people go. Pharaoh's heart gets hardened. Pharaoh says, no. God sends another plague. Cycle keeps going. Eventually, what happens is God ultimately sends the worst plague of all. He kills the firstborn of every Egyptian family. Pharaoh relents, lets the people go. And what's amazing about all of this is that Paul tells us that God not only raised up Pharaoh so that God's glory might be seen, but that God actually hardened Pharaoh's heart. Wow. God not only raises up Pharaoh so that God may be glorified, but God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now, you got to remember something, though. When you look back in Exodus, you're going to discover several times in Exodus where Pharaoh hardens his own heart. So you got Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and then you've, you're told here God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. So what is going on here? Is God causing evil? Is God the author of evil? We know that's not the case because God is holy. He can't create evil. The Bible affirms this in James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So if that's the case, how in the world can Paul say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, folks, God didn't have to create Pharaoh's hardened heart. It was already there. The only thing that God had to do was remove his restraining influence that was keeping Pharaoh's heart from being as hard as it possibly can. And that's how it works in our world right now. The reason that we have any level of peace in our world right now, why? Because God is holding back evil. When God relents from holding back evil, you get Adolf Hitler. You get Vladimir Putin, who's about to roll into Ukraine. You get Fidel Castro. That's what you get. You see, Pharaoh's heart, it was, was already hard. All that God had to do was, was restrain take back his restraints, and his heart went exactly where it was going to go. And this is amazing, that God in his sovereignty is using an evil man to accomplish his good purposes. And what we see here is Pharaoh and the Israelites, they're actually serving as an example of God's election. Both rebel against God, both deserve God's wrath. Pharaoh gets justice and is punished by God. The people of Israel get mercy, and they're saved by God. And at the end of the day, there is no injustice done. That's what happens. And that, brothers and sisters, is how election works. God has mercy on those he will have mercy, and he hardens those who he will harden. Now, Paul knew this would be a hard teaching. He understood that. And he knew that our natural tendency is going to be, I'm going to argue with God about this, because I do not like this. My own human self-sufficiency says this is not right. 
And so what Paul does is he gives us an illustration to help us understand our place. Look at verses 19 through 26. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not not beloved I will call beloved. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Now, there's not enough time to do this section justice. So uh, I'm going to strive uh, to, to deal with this. Bongo and Ben will, will deal with this in more detail, but there is a couple comments that I want to make before we close. Verse 19, it has the natural question. If God is the ultimate one who determines salvation, if he's the one who shows mercy to some and hardens others, then how in the world can we be held responsible? That's the question. Verses 20 to 23, they actually contain the answer. Verses 20 and 21, what does it tell us? It tells us something that we already know, but something that we tend to forget all the time. We are not God. We're not infinite. We're not all-knowing. We're not all powerful. We're not all present. God, however, is all of those things. On top of that, we are sinful. He is holy. And as such, who in the world are we to question God? Who are we to argue with God about this? How are, are we to hold God into judgment? You can remember a guy who did that. His name was Job. And at the end of Job, he gets a crazy tongue lashing from the Lord. God says to Job, so where have you been, man? Were you around when when I fashioned the world? Do you know where the storms come from? And Job's like, I should have never done this. This is not good. Verse 22, this is what else we discover. Human beings are responsible for their own damnation. God does not make people do evil. People have done that all by themselves. God did not make me drive like an idiot onto the expressway. That was the evil in my heart that got passed down from the two of them when I was born. God, on the other hand, he bears with us. He is patient with us as we joyfully wallow in our sin. That's what God does. And God, is, and God isn't the one who prepares people for damnation because nowhere in verse 22 does it say that God does that. People do it to themselves. Look again here at, at verse 22. What does it say? It says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. It does not say who prepared them. But in the next verse, it does tell us who God prepared for mercy. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. I know this is hard. Why God chooses for salvation some and passes over others will never be fully understood because God is God. And what I know is this. Human beings, we have a responsibility. And God is sovereign. And those two things, they run parallel to one another. 
They they are truths that, that we in our finite minds will never, ever be able to reconcile. It's the same way as the Trinity. How can God be three persons yet one God? It is for God to know and for us to accept. But this we can know. Let me paraphrase John Stott. For those who are saved, the credit goes to God. And for those who are lost, the blame goes to them. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for uh, this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord God, it is hard at times. That is why this is called a hard truth. And I pray, dear God, that as we ponder these things over the next hours and days and weeks, that, Lord, your spirit would speak deep into our hearts. Uh, Lord, I recognize that, that there are others who have other understandings of this particular passage, dear God. I pray that we would always treat one another with kindness and grace, knowing that the most important thing is confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead so that we might be saved. Lord, as we prepare to take this offering, we thank you for those who, uh, Lord, give sacrificially each and every week. Thank you for those who uh, are at home and they give online or through the mail. For those who are here in this place who are going to place something in this basket right now. Lord, we pray for those who desire to give but find that they are unable. We pray that you would provide them means to, uh, Lord, be blessed by you as, as they bless others. And, Thank you now for this offering, and it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.